Welcome to the DevOps Diversity Podcast, the all-inclusive place to talk people, process, and technology for enterprise transformation and modernization. I'm your host, Connor Dellenbank. Today's episode is brought to you by Strategio. Strategio is dedicated to increasing diversity, equity, and inclusion for underrepresented and underserved groups within enterprise IT. Strategio sources STEM graduates from universities across North America, invests in paid training and relocation, trains in skills including cloud and DevOps, site reliability engineering, full stack development, cybersecurity engineering, and data science, and then delivers these highly trained technologists to enterprise organizations on a one to two year contract to hire program. If you would like to find out more about the Strategio program, please go to strategio.tech. And today I'm here with Tammy Bryant-Buto. Tammy is a Principal Site Reliability Engineer, or SRE, at Gremlin, where she works on chaos engineering, the facilitation of controlled experiments to identify improvements. Gremlin's enterprise chaos engineering platform makes it easy to build more reliable applications in order to prevent outages, innovate faster, and earn customer trust. Previously, Tammy led SRE teams at Dropbox, responsible for the databases and storage systems used by over 500 million customers, was an IMOC, Incident Manager on Call, where she was responsible for managing and resolving high severity incidents across the company. She also worked in infrastructure engineering, security engineering, and product engineering. Tammy is the co-founder of Girl Geek Academy, a global movement to teach 1 million women technical skills by 2025. Tammy is an Australian and enjoys riding bikes, which I do as well, skateboarding, snowboarding, and surfing. She also loves mosh pits, crowd surfing, metal, and hardcore punk. Tammy, what an intro. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Connor. I'm really excited to get to chat today. Yeah, I, I'm absolutely buzzing. We're both down here in South Florida, so enjoying the brutally hot summer, but tropical vibes right now. And yes, originally from Australia, I don't think you're probably any stranger to living in the hot weather. No, like I, I tell everyone I picked um, South Florida. I'm in Fort Lauderdale because it's the most Australian place I could find in America. Like specifically, it's a lot like Queensland where I went to university. Palm trees, sunny weather, like hot, humid. I love it. <laughs> I think, yes, yeah, like people say to me, they're like, why do you like living down in the heat? And I'm like, I'm kind of made for this. Like my, <laughs> like my family's from the Caribbean. It's like, I like tropical vibes. I, I, this to me is not, I hate the cold. <laughs> yeah, I put up with it same. in New York for a few years, but like this, that was more brutal than any uh, hot weather or sweat. So it's all good. So look, really grateful to have you here. Love what you're doing at Gremlin. Love what you're doing with Girl Geek Academy. And so much of the, the things you do align with my personal philosophies, things like you always seem to be sharing content and all of your knowledge and collaborating with the communities. For those of you that don't know Tammy, I think today you're going to get a real intro into quite an amazing and inspiring person. And I think what's really special about Tammy, and hopefully we get to dig into that, is she's nothing like the person you would assume given all of this knowledge she has. She's here doing her thing in tech and a big player and has so much knowledge about chaos engineering and site reliability engineering. But when you hear where she came from and her humble beginnings, it's going to really shock you and make you think, damn, anyone can build a career and a great life and get this knowledge. And that's exactly what we want to focus on. So Tammy, start us off with your amazing story from foster child to principal SRE at Gremlin. Thanks so much for the kind words. I really appreciate it. It's been a very interesting journey for sure. So yeah, like I started um, back 
when I was a baby, I was in the hospital. My foster parents got a phone call that there was like a baby that they needed to be looked after. Um, my dad was like super excited. My mom and him raced over to the hospital and they found me over there. They were like, yep, that's her. They noticed me straight away. I was like upside down compared to every other baby. They think it's like really funny. <laughs> They're like, you've always been different and unique. And, you know, they took me home and that was the first time that they decided to foster. They'd done a lot of training before because they really wanted to foster lots of kids, take a long time to be able to become a foster parent in Australia. You have to get like qualified, certified by the government. And then from there, they just fostered tons of kids. So I think like the most number of kids I ever lived with at the same time was about eight kids. So pretty cool. Sometimes we'd have like sisters and brothers coming to live with us as well, like a bunch of siblings. And that was for my whole life. Like, and it was really cool too. You know, I'd have like older sisters that would come and stay. Sometimes they come and go, come back later. That's like the world of foster care, right? But my parents actually were the ones that looked after a group home in central, the central coast of New South Wales. So that's like about a few, you know, an hour or so, an hour and a half north of Sydney. Really beautiful though, by the beach, the government It was amazing to look after us like that. We had a farm with vegetable patches. We had a horse. We had like chickens, like cows. We could milk the cows. We would make ice cream. So it was like actually a really like different childhood growing up, but so amazing. And, you know, the one really interesting thing too, a lot of people are like, how did you learn to code? How did you learn about technology and the internet? So my mom, she decided that all of us kids should learn about computers. So she actually like rented a computer. She couldn't afford to buy a computer, but she figured out that she could rent a computer from the local department store. I think it was like $5 a week to rent a computer. Like, I don't know anyone else that has done that, but that's what my mom did to make sure that we would have access to a computer. So since I was about, you know, four or five years old, she even younger, probably maybe even three years old, she was renting us a computer and we all would get on it together. We would teach each other how to do all these different things, like how to draw, how to type. There's just so many funny stories because of that. Cause I started on a computer so young. I used to get in trouble for typing up my English assignments when I was like six years old because the teacher was like, you have to learn to handwrite. Like you can't just type these up, Tammy. <laughs> I'd like type them and print them. Yeah. You're like, so I don't need like to learn really handwriting. Funny. I'm just going to use this computer all the time. <laughs> That's what I, I said. I like would get into debates with the teacher. My mom would come in and be like, I think typing's the future. Why do you want it to handwrite? It was like really funny. So uh, I'm, I'm a very fast typer because of that, obviously, but it was like a good skill to learn. And yeah, we just used to stay up late, like making things. And then we got the internet when I was 11 years old. So this is like 1995. And we were all so pumped. Like you can imagine like, you know, six or seven kids like crowded around a computer, so excited to go on the internet for the first time. We're like- What age were you when you started to use the computer? So you got the internet at I was 11. really little. What were we talking about? Like- Three, I was four? I like, yeah, like three years old. Like I can just never, I can never not remember having a computer. Like I can remember always having a computer my whole life. Yeah. Because what the was other- the reason that your, your mom decided that computers were important? How did she think I'm going to, it's worth my time to rent this. All these kids need to learn it. When at the time there was a farm out there, that there was a horse, yeah. there was the outdoors. What pushed her to think this is the future. And like in that location that that was so important to do. Yeah. Like my mom really values education. So you know, not only did she get us to learn computers, like that was something she just honestly thought, I think computers are the future. All of her friends thought, no, like, I don't believe you. Why are you 
wasting your time getting them on the computer. I get them to learn other skills because my dad, actually, his business is landscape gardening. So he's like outdoors all day long doing that work. And obviously like we were totally outdoors too. We would be playing outside all the time. We would be like riding the horses, picking vegetables, like milking the cows. Like I've done that since I was tiny, That's you know, awesome. could barely walk. And I was like out there milking the cows. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then typing but, in between yeah. and learning to yeah, use Yeah, exactly. Computer. Yeah, it was like a, I guess maybe it was also good because as soon as it got dark, we had to come inside, you know, it gets dark at like 6 p.m. Our bedtime was always 8.30. It was like very strict for all the kids. And so we were allowed to like go on the computer for an hour a night. So we only had one. So we just all crowded around it, trying to learn together and taking turns. And then on the weekends, we'd be like, how much time are we allowed to use the computer? Like, can we learn stuff? And then we just like do little things like make each other birthday cards on the computer. And she got us not only a computer, but as soon as it came out, she got us a scanner. She got us a printer. Like we had one of those printers with like the little holes in the paper, like dot matrix printer. So yeah, like she was just always really into it, but she also got us to learn piano. She took me to music lessons and all of my other siblings. I, I remember going to music lessons since I was about two. So wow. yeah, just really yeah. loves education. So she really put the, the focus on education. It's not just like, I'm going to give these children a home. It's I'm going to actually create a future and give them something to really work towards and stuff. Various interests and passions and whichever one comes up that they like, they can pursue and make their career. Exactly. Yeah. There was, she was always just like, do whatever you love. Like don't, feel like you have to do something in particular, just do what you enjoy. My dad used to take us to the library to rent books every week. We would go on like Wednesday nights and everyone would get like five or six books. So it's just like a really cool way to grow up, just being, you know, really encouraged to pursue your own personal interests, like whatever you were into. Yeah. When you hear someone's come through the foster program and their life, you think, okay, that's a, a sad thing to think about initially. But the way you've explained it, I think is actually a really beautiful story. And I appreciate you being so open with me and with our audience on sharing that because what we really want to do here and the reason Tammy's so open is because she understands that by sharing her story, that might be other people that are from the similar background or maybe even worse or better any background, but it shows you yeah. that whoever you are, you've got a way to move forward and you don't have to hide who you are you can be a full self and it still is a great story to inspire people that was you know your early childhood you were 11 years old you then started going on the internet what happened from there to get you to principal sre right now because i think we've got a sort of a few parts of that story still remaining yeah so i i mean when i hopped on the internet i remember you know my older foster sisters they were like about 17 at the time like almost finishing high school and we were just like there's nothing really cool on the internet for girls. Like, that's just what we thought. We're like, oh, this place is kind of boring. Like, you know, it was definitely made for adults. I think mostly like, you know, white men were making the internet back then. Like, to be honest, that's like who was building web pages and places to go on the internet. And so it just didn't appeal to like an 11 year old girl from Australia. That's like, you know, trying to find interesting things to do. Yeah. And um, yeah, so from there we were like, can we make stuff on the internet? Like, can we build web pages? And so we started to try and like just learn how to code, learn how to make stuff. And um, we did it, you know, luckily one of my mom's best friends, he worked at Microsoft. So that was like really handy, right? He could teach me everything that I, if I had any question, like how do I code? How do I make a web page? Like, how do I get a domain name? Like, how do I go on a, a mud, whatever, a forum, anything like he would just show me how to do it all. And he used to come over like once a week and do like computer tutoring for me because um, I was really into it. So yeah, that was awesome. So I really learned a lot from him as well. And I also just took every single computing class in Australia. So in Australia, it's pretty cool because 
in year seven, you have like mandatory computing studies as a class. I don't know if it's like that in other countries, but um, did the same thing in year eight, year nine, um, year 10. You just do computing. And then in year 11 and 12, I picked computing as a subject to major in for my final end of school exams. And because of that, I was learning how to code at school in year seven. So when you're like 12 years old and I was learning about databases, I was building my first databases, making web pages. I used to like buy those magazines from the news agent where it was like, build your own e-commerce store in six hours or whatever. And I would just yeah. like do the whole thing. It was like a 12 year old <laughs> girl. Like it's so funny. And I didn't so want awesome. to sell anything. Like I just wanted to learn how to build an e-commerce site. I just thought it was a cool thing to do. <laughs> you, had, you had the curiosity, didn't you? The natural curiosity yeah. was there and it always was from the sounds of it. Like just to, to try and build stuff and I'm assuming try and break stuff and just see how everything yeah. worked and the bits in between. Yeah. So it's interesting. Like I'm originally, I was just really into building stuff. Like I wasn't someone who really took things apart to try and like, um, you know, figure out how they worked, like to reverse engineer things. I was definitely more of a, like, I'm just going to build this from scratch. Like that's like how I started, which is pretty different, I think. And, um, you know, I'd say as a kid, it's, it's probably easier to like take something that exists and then go and reverse engineer it and figure out how it works and then slightly tweak it or whatever, you know, like you go to a page view source and then modify it to make your own version. But I was like, nah, I'm going to build it from scratch. I'm going to write every line of code. Like, I don't know why, yeah. but I was totally like that. Um, and that leads after, well into site yeah. reliability engineering though, where you understand the end to end way that, you know, systems work. And it's yeah. like, yeah, yes, you could have learned afterwards the reverse aspect, but to know from start to finish, that entire software development life cycle and front end, yes. back end, every aspect of it, that's super useful, I imagine. Yes, totally. So it taught me about architecture, about design, about like estimation as a 12 year old, like how long is it actually going to take me to do this? The magazine says six hours, but obviously like 12 year old kid, it took me longer. <laughs> right. I think it <laughs> I took thought me you were like... going to say it took like two hours. I was like, <laughs> no. she's really good. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it took me like a month to do my first one because I I actually was struggling to like get some of the stuff because it was like, you need to use this software. It costs money. I was like, I don't have money. Like I don't have a job. So right. then I was like motivated to get a job. And my first job was a paper run. So then I could buy software and stuff like that. You know, I needed Crazy. to like really ask my mom for licenses to software because I wanted to be able to use stuff like Dreamweaver, you know, all this stuff costs money. Like, so it's hard when you're a little kid, but eventually like, yeah, I saved up money and I was able to like buy software. I would go and like buy like the box with the CD at the shop and I'd save up and do that. So I also worked at a Kodak photo lab, which is so crazy now because the world's totally changed that they don't exist. But I did that from like 14 years old until 18 and learned about technology that way too. I did all like the digital photos and the photoshopping where you like remove people from a picture because someone wants that to happen yeah uh, a lot of a lot of interesting things <laughs> get rid there of those well. x's from the picture <laughs> yeah i i yeah. definitely had to do that got paid to do that weird job but <laughs> that's funny but again it's a diversity in the background the different scenarios that have taught you so much i think that's what i'm starting to realize as we continue this conversation it's you've seen so many parts of technology yeah. and it's not through someone telling you to do it it's through pure passion and interest and curiosity yeah. And just pursuing different things, you know, like as a 14 year old, I could never afford a Photoshop license, but working at the Kodak Photo Lab, I could use Photoshop every day. And that was like pretty cool. I realized too, that I love to code much more than do design and like design is definitely not my skill set at all. So I was like, yeah, I'm way better at writing the code and doing database work. And, and the reason I got into reliability was actually like, once I started to work 
on production systems. My first job out of college, I studied computer science, so pretty traditional career path there. I, I graduated and I was like responsible for looking after a mortgage broking application. And anytime I wrote new code and added it to the system, because there was so much technical debt, it just like was so slow. It was like, right. oh, this is like painful to like build new features into this because I was like, oh, it just nothing works quickly like I'd like it to. So I look backwards. Why doesn't it work well? Oh, the database queries aren't good. Oh, let's look even further. The database is actually not set up well. Oh, let's look even further at stuff. Oh, the load balance is like having issues or the servers aren't very good quality. So I just was going back and back and that got me excited about like being able to build more reliable systems so that, you know, that are fast, that are stable, that are performant. So any engineer can come and like actually contribute code, can add features and it works as you would expect it to. Cause like, I was really passionate about that. And for, since then, like I've never stopped doing that work and now it's been 12 years and I'm just really passionate about it. That's awesome. So I guess that stems to a really interesting point then, or, but to many of our listeners who would be coming through kind of the education system and trying to get their career going, something as simple as what is a site reliability engineer. I'd love your perspective and description of that. Yeah, sure. So I think like the roles of engineers have changed a lot over the years. When I first started, everyone was just called like an engineer or a programmer, software engineer, something like that. And um, I think my first title was programmer when I first graduated out of school, like graduate programmer. And basically you did like what we call now full stack engineering. That was like what everyone did when they started. You didn't really specialize back then. And now it's pretty different. Like back then it was like, you'd be a general software for engineer for say like three to five years, then you specialize in something. So that way you've got like a good knowledge of a lot of different things. And then you can pick what is it, what interests you. Maybe it's backend, maybe it's front end, maybe you're really into like databases, whatever it is, like caching systems. And you pick that to focus on performance engineering, QA, whatever it is. And then, um, but now it's different. Now it's interesting. You can actually start straight out of college and specialize, which I think is cool too. Like if you already know what you want to do, you don't have to spend those years like learning all of these different things and then going into what you want to do. You can come out and be a site reliability engineer straight away. Um, and what that role is, it's actually a lot of different things. So the role was originally created at Google. And if you want to learn much more about it, I recommend reading the uh, site reliability engineering book written by the Google team, which is published by O'Reilly. And I think like there's a really great pyramid in that book that describes it in a visual way. So there's like a number of different things that you look after. Incident response, which is like, if there's an outage, you know, you get alerted, you resolve the issues, but it's also all the proactive stuff around that. Uh, there's postmortems, which is what we call, when there's an incident afterwards, you'll write a postmortem and it's um, a timeline of all the events. So imagine like what a detective does when something goes wrong, they go and they piece together a timeline and understand and what happened when and like what were all of the different factors that we need to consider that led to this bad situation. So that's what you do there. And then there's also other things like you're responsible for helping with product launches to make sure that stability needs are met and performance uh, speed needs are met as well. You'll also do work in terms of like uh, automation. So SREs or site reliability engineers do a lot of automation work. So say for example, if you have a fleet of 10,000 servers, instead of hiring like a hundred engineers to manually like make sure those servers are healthy, get uh, upgraded, like get recycled, get all of their patches. Like there's a lot of work you have to do to make sure that your fleet is healthy. Think about it like 
if you run a farm and you've got cows, like you have to like feed your cows and look after them and make sure they get their shots and whatever. So it's like that. And the idea of automation is that you can automate that. So instead of having like a hundred engineers for 10,000 servers, you could have like three engineers for 10,000 servers. And those engineers are spending their time doing the automation work. They're writing the code, they're building the systems, they're building like uh, web UIs and interfaces to be able to explain to all the other teams across the company, like what's going on with this automation. So it's like a very different approach. And that's like probably the best way to explain, it, I would say. Oh, SREs also do work with testing to chaos engineering, failure injection, like doing proactive work. But a lot of the time you're responsible for keeping things up and running. That's what I would say is the most important thing so that customers can always use your services that you provide. That's really, really great description and, and told in it in a very interesting way. So essentially, we're looking at system health, uptime, availability, and reliability so that your system isn't, if it doesn't break, is that one of the goals? So you look at the proactive yep. part, it doesn't go offline, but at the same time, it's always available and it's, and it's in, running in a way that's also efficient for the company and not overusing the, the servers and so on, so that it's kind of like having lots of spikes in the times it's not necessary. But the work you're doing there in, from SRE also in involves, as you mentioned there, chaos engineering. Now that to some people's like chaos engineering, what is that? And you know, you'll hear about it from the likes of Netflix and where Tammy works at Gremlin. They're, you know, big advocates of this and sharing a lot in the space. I would love to know a bit more about chaos engineering as well. Yeah, sure. So um, chaos engineering is really cool. I've been practicing it for 10 years now and it's been in a lot of different forms. So I'll, I guess like a good way to explain it is by sharing what Gremlin does. So at Gremlin, we build a chaos engineering service and our whole mission is like what my mission is as an individual to help make a more reliable internet. The other thing too, that if you come from a country where the internet isn't good, like me, Australia, it's very slow. You can't even do video calls. It would be very hard to record a podcast. You know, you can't have a smart home because there's no way that you could rely on the internet to turn your lights on and off. Like it's just never going to work. Um, so, you know, you really want to help build a reliable internet. Like I look into the future in five to 10 years and I'm like, what could it look like? Like, that's like really exciting to me. No maintenance periods, downtime because of that, you'd be able to always access your information and your money and your ATM card. So the idea of Gremlin was that we were wanting to help companies all over the world by building a SaaS platform to do that. And now our customers are really amazing from many different companies all over the world. So JPMC, banking, uh, Grubhub, Twilio, Walmart, Target, MailChimp, like a lot of names that you would have heard of and they all practice chaos engineering. The idea of it too is that you purposely inject failure to identify areas that you can improve. And it's just a really fast way to uncover issues in your system because there's a lot of other ways that you can do it, but it's very, very slow and not as thorough. So like, for example, you can print out all of the code of a very old system and try and read it all to understand it. Well, it takes a lot of time. I've done it and it's very hard. And it's also very hard to try and think in your head, like what happens when this downstream system is trying to communicate with this upstream system? Or is there a cascading domino effect when this problem occurs? Like you don't really know until you actually inject failure and try and make it happen and then watch it in real time. And the idea there is like, it's much better to inject failure at say 2 p.m. when you've had coffee, you've had lunch, you're sitting together like on a Zoom call as a team and you inject the failure. You don't have to do it in production. You can do it on like pre-prod or staging and you watch what happens as a team and you all learn about the system. I've never, and we call that a game day. So I've never been to a game day and not learn something new, which I think is pretty cool um, and exciting as well. So yeah, but I think if 
folks out there are interested in learning more about chaos engineering and site reliability engineering, I'd recommend actually doing um, our certificate. So it's a free certificate that we just launched and you can just test your skills, your chaos engineering knowledge. So just go to gremlin.com slash certification. And there's also a study guide on our GitHub. If you go to github.com slash gremlin, it's a 20 question exam, takes about 30 minutes, but that'll also help you understand if this is something that you're interested in, if this is something you'd like to pursue further. I definitely think it's a really cool area to get into. There's a lot of job opportunities. A lot of companies across the world are practicing chaos engineering now and they understand that it's important. So that would be like my tip for getting started. And you get a reward as a certificate, which will help you get an interview later. Yeah, that, that's great. And the fact that you you guys are, you know, at, at Gremlin are actually making that available is really cool. I, you know, I've had a look through that certification, all the documentation behind it, you know, even the, the advice that comes before you even do the certification. They have very clear descriptions, the, the why, the how, the what of what chaos engineering is is, how it's used. It's absolutely an in-demand job. Having these skills, especially if you're a fresh graduate, you're looking to get into your career, there's going to be very few people that you're going up against in the job market that actually have a chaos engineering certificate, or they even know what you could, they, you might, they might say, yeah, I've heard of it but they can't describe the first line about what happens you know, within chaos engineering. So having that insight and also from the mindset perspective, what it teaches you is failure is okay. If it's like, firstly, you're, you're doing it in a controlled environment. You're, you're finding out the, the, the potential flaws in your own system that you've built and you're doing it in a way that you can address and then you know, essentially fail fast, improve that. So it's bringing that whole methodology and mindset of failure is okay in the right domain as long as you learn quickly from it and it's actually doing it proactively so that you can get better. Love the concept of, it. And also, yeah, I'm just reiterating that I really like the way Gremlin are doing that. So afterwards, I'll also put, you know, links out there for everyone to have a look at. And obviously we'll make Tammy's contact info available, her LinkedIn and so on for people to get hold of her. Tammy, you, you, from one of the things I noticed when looking at your background and you share this on your on your own profile, you've interviewed and hired 70 plus engineers in your current role, from what I can see, like that is a lot of hires and for quite complex jobs as well. So what tips and tricks can you share with us? Yeah, I've hired so many people over the years. I think it also working at DigitalOcean, I worked at DigitalOcean from 60 employees to 300. That was a really fast growth startup. We did that in a year and a half. And I think I must have hired like 100 people or something in that role. So that was pretty cool. And the interesting thing that I learned from interviewing is like, you know, it's just really cool to get to meet people. So like interviewing, think of it as a privilege, like it's a privilege to get to spend your time getting to know someone understanding where they've come from, learning about them, connecting with them, hearing their story. I think sometimes you go to an interview and, you know, maybe I think like the worst interview is when someone on the other side that's interviewing you is just kind of rushing or in a bad mood and doesn't want to be there because they have to be there because it's part of their job or something. Like, I just think it's really important for interviewers to show up and like make the most of the time. Like you're already there, like try and have a good experience and give a good experience to the person you're interviewing. And also like, even if you don't give that person a role, like maybe they'll say, I had such an amazing time interviewing that company. Like I'm going to apply again in a year or two. And I'm also going to tell my friends that they should interview as well, because like I had a great time meeting them and they gave me tips for like, you know, what to learn to continue on my journey. So I, I've just interviewed so many folks. And I met so many amazing people and also like some lifelong friends, you know, because of doing that, when you meet someone that you interview and you're like, wow, like this person has done so many cool things. Like I really respect that. I think they have a really interesting way of looking at the world and solving problems. Um, I have like a lot of 
you know, very specific types of questions that I ask specifically for site reliability engineering. Like I have a few favorite questions. Like one of my favorites is, you know, uh, it's pretty like common question, but they might say to you, Hey, like draw me an architecture diagram of a photo sharing application. Like love that question. It's just like super general. Right. And then they go and then they, you just have to ask the interviewer questions to get more information. Um, and that's the key is to ask them like, you know, should this be multi-region or is it, is it, do we need to be able to do failover? Like those are the types of things that SREs think about, like, you know, where will the data centers be? Is this hosted in AWS? Like, is that okay? Like what kind of, can I use managed services or are we building the services from scratch? Like what's going on? Um, what are the constraints? Like what languages will we be writing in? So love that interview question. And then you get up and you, you do whiteboarding or if it's remote now, you could use something like Miro to do online whiteboarding. The other thing too is like, I think it's good to help people learn and discover their strengths. So I'm personally a very visual learner. So I like being able to whiteboard and being able to like write up any descriptions or draw diagrams, write code, explain what's happening with error messages because I'm a visual person. So that's like a strength of mine. So I'm going to do well if I get into a an interview where people say, draw me a diagram on a board. I'm like, sweet. I love this. This is great. If, if I can only talk about it, it's actually like harder for me. I'd rather draw it because then I've got something to help me explain to the person that I'm talking to. Hey, this box means this, this box means this. Like it just find it feels better, but a lot of people really, really hate like doing whiteboarding interviews. And so like, just think about that too. Like, why do you hate it? Is it because you're not a visual learner? Is it, is it because you'd rather just talk through things or is it because you haven't had practice doing it? Like, you know, we don't often get up in our homes and be like, okay, this is what I'm going to make for dinner and like draw up some <laughs> pasta and some sauce. Exactly, you know? yeah. <laughs> so it's, like, <laughs> it's not a natural thing, but, um, but if you're a visual learner, you might actually love it. So I actually have a whiteboard at home too. So I do practice it. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, it's worth, it's worth practicing whether you do or don't like it because it might be the yeah. only way to get into certain jobs at the end of the day. Um, and yeah. I think though what you're sharing there about some of the questions you ask, you're really saying that you're looking into the mindset and the processes, how someone thinks. It's not like, do they know the exact answer? There's not really a specific no. wrong answer there. But it, if they were to be like, yeah, I'm just going to go and draw this straight away because I know everything. Yeah. I think under pressure, yeah, that's right. Exact, under pressure, quite often when people feel nervous, which is normal in an interview, they're going to go straight away and just think that they have to show that they're so smart. And I think that's really a, a missed opportunity a lot of people have. There's this massive part in between, like it's not black or white, the gray area of talking through a process, sharing what you're doing, because you might actually have an awesome process and still get the wrong answer at times because you've just kind of like overthought something or got it slightly wrong at the very end. But if you can document the way you do things and share that mindset, that's probably what the interview is looking for much more than they went over that. Because you don't, you, you literally cannot know the answer to that and get it right without the process yeah. we just discussed, at least some of it, you know? Exactly. Like that's so right. And a lot of the time interviewers at like these big companies in Silicon Valley, they're looking to understand that you have a framework for how you think about things. So actually like it's a very good thing to research different kinds of frameworks. Um, so, you know, say when you're doing problem solving or prioritization, you know, my favorite prioritization framework is like a four by four grid where you look at importance versus urgency. Like, is this urgent and very important? Then yes, I'm going to do this. Is this not urgent and not important, then I'm not even going to do it. That goes in the trash. Like that's something that we're not even going to bother doing, but just like explaining to people that you have frameworks for how you think about things and 
that's like what they're looking for is that, you know, you don't just get in there and wing it. You like actually have um, a mind where you sit down and you put things into buckets, you plan things out. You can explain to everyone how and why you do things, what you're planning to do, when you're planning to do it. You know, you're a great communicator. That's what folks mean by communication. And something else that I'd really recommend everyone focus on as an engineer to learn the skill of is prioritization. This is like, for me, like the number one skill that a lot of folks are not good at, but need to be good at to be able to excel in your career and progress, um, be promoted, you know, achieve great results, be able to be a great contributor to your team and to your company. And that's all about figuring out exactly that, like what is very important, what is very urgent and how do you know what's important? How do you know what's urgent? Like you have to ask questions, right? You have to ask your leadership team. You have to ask other teams. You have to listen to like, what are the business goals of the company? What what are the main OKRs or KPIs that everyone's focused on? And that's going to help you do really well. And it's okay if you're like not good at it at the start, right? Like a lot of people have been working for 10 plus years and it's still a skill that they haven't mastered. So yeah, just like try and get better. That's a a great tip there. Something to highlight from today, actually, specifically that it's that to me is coming across as one of the reasons you're so high performing in your career. When you look at, you've been at DigitalOcean, you've been at Dropbox, you're at Gremlin right now, you are a principal in your role. So clearly you've excelled along the way. It's not just because you have the technical prowess and because you have the curiosity we've discussed. It's also not just the communication skills. I think actually being able to prioritize and while doing that, that's showing that, you know, you're not just thinking, oh, it's the leader's job. Because you know, when I've hosted leaders on no. previous podcasts, I'm thinking, how do they prioritize? But it's you know, when you're looking at people who are in engineering and moving through the ranks of that, they also have to step outside of your own case that you're working on, every everything that's for you, your own goals that day, and actually think, like Tammy just shared, what are the, the quarterly objectives? What are the key performance indicators? How's the company doing? Who else? Which other teams can I speak? speak to both in different areas of engineering, different areas of our broad technology teams, as well as the business, right? So then you're getting an understanding of, I now know the importance of what my tasks are. And from that, I can decide this one is worth me spending time immediately. That one, you know, the fifth task I've got actually isn't that important to the overall goals and objectives of the company. That one might actually not even need to be done once we do these first few pieces. So you're kind of really prioritizing and moving forward efficiently. It's not just about writing good code or being a great engineer. It's much more about like you you could write the best code. You could do the best chaos engineering and everything else that comes in, in between for the wrong task for something that's just not focused Mm -hmm. on moving the business forward. Yes. That's super important. And also like something that will happen to you through your career, like this has happened to me before, like you'll be focused on the wrong thing. Like maybe you'll be writing a ton of code for something that was assigned to you, but then it ends up that like it was maybe incorrectly assigned or, you know, it wasn't actually that important to the business and then it never ships. Right. So you like write something, you write all this code, you do all this work and then it never goes live. Um, And so it just sits there and it's never used. So it's kind of like a wasted effort, but, you know, I always look at that too. as like, okay, well, I learned, I explored, I did what my, my leadership team asked me to do, but you can like also dive into that, right? Like try and ask more questions. Like how much time should I spend on this? Is this like a, high priority tasks. Is there other work that I should be spending more time on? Even ask your boss, like, you know, you allocated me this project. Should I spend five hours a week on it? Or is this more like a 30 hours a week project or something like, you know, because then they can tell you, oh, actually just spend two hours a week on that. And they'll always know. 
So you, and, and as a junior engineer, it's really good and okay to ask. The other tip that I would say is like, if you have, um, you know, levels within your company, then you can look at the levels to understand how do you move from a junior engineer to a principal engineer, or you can also look on GitHub, like Dropbox recently release those so maybe you can link to those to connor of like levels for engineers and it explains exactly what connor said and what i'm sharing today is a junior engineer who's like fresh out of um you know just learning to study a bit got their first job they're going to be given like bite-sized tasks and that's what they're allocated so it's like delivery of tasks you know that's what you're assessed on when you're a principal engineer, it's like is able to like understand the vision of the company for the next five years and determine a strategy that impacts like, you know, several business units that moves everybody forward. Like it's much more vague. Um, and that's like what we are working towards. Like, how do you go from like I delivered a task to I created a vision that now a hundred engineers are marching down this road together and we're heading in this direction because I came up with this idea and got everyone on the same page. Like that's like so much work and it can take you months to get everyone to a point where they're ready to then start that project. But that's part of what you have to do as a principal engineer too. It's a lot more getting buy-in, working with other people, prioritizing what's important, listening to what's important, being able to pivot is really critical too. But yeah, it's a ton of fun. And I would say like learn as much as you can when you're starting out because that's going to make you so much better when you hit your 10 year mark right of working in industry and that's when it's okay to not know really that much you know it's it's fine that's yeah. when it's, it's always okay to not know things and people should take note of that too but especially when you're at the beginning where there's not really that much pressure on you, you know, compared to what you'll have in the future. You've got a lot more time to learn, a lot more time to ask people questions and try and grow in your own. Everyone's expecting you to grow. And a lot of people who come into their career at the early phase think that they have to show like, I'm worthy of being in this job. But actually by asking questions, yeah. if you go out there and start qualifying in the way that Tammy's just mentioned, qualifying the work that's being put on, the, on your plate, that's showing that you, you know how to prioritize, that you think big picture. And it's not just, you know, we highlighted the, the business reasons, the overall company mission reasons, but really what Tammy said in a great way just now was the, uh, the ability to actually not have something sat there for, let's say you send your own code and or your deliverable and it's sat there and not being used. Think about what that's doing for your own productivity and well-being. You actually feel much happier when you know that the work you've put time into is going towards something. And when it doesn't go in towards something, it can kind of suck sometimes. And that kind of like has an overall impact on your long-term happiness in a job. If that happens over and over again, you probably won't enjoy what you're doing as much as if you were kind of seeing the success and the end results of what you're working on. Exactly. Like I think most folks want to make an impact. That's like really what everyone wants to do. And it's actually like a, a value at Facebook is focus on impact. I worked with a lot of like ex-Facebook people at Dropbox and I love that value. Like that's so cool. Like focus on impact, like focus on trying to be able to contribute, make a positive difference with what you're yeah, doing. That's a good one. Yeah. Focus on impact. So, um, Speaking of impact, you're making an impact far and wide outside of your immediate role at Gremlin and, you know, outside of just what you're supposed to do in your in your day-to-day tasks. You've been supporting in the sense that you actually co-founded a uh, an academy for women in technology. So talk to us about Girl Geek Academy, what you've done there and what you're trying to continue doing with that. Yeah. So I guess like, you know, starting out, I always loved the internet myself. I always loved technology, thought it was super cool. Um, I went to an all girls public school in Australia. So my class was filled with girls that love technology, love computers. We would like build computers together, build websites, make stuff. And, and then I went to 
university college as you call it in America and um there was like three girls in my whole degree of like over a thousand people so I was like that's weird where is everybody and it was kind of strange that you know for me that was really jarring like why are there no girls here and so then after that I was like hmm there's like it's interesting like let's look into this so I talked to our head of school who was an amazing woman at the time her name's Ruth Christie um the head of computer science at Queensland University of Technology. I'm like a really proud alum of that school. The whole slogan is like university for the real world. And they really teach you like a lot of really amazing practical stuff. Like, you know, you're learning like two programming languages in your first semester, which was awesome. And um, building real things. Like I built an ATM in Java in my first semester. So cool. But um, yeah, but like she said to me, hey, like, yeah, it is, you know, we really would love to have more girls women like pursue technology as a career it's a great career it's like super flexible you can work from home you know it's it's just such a great career it's very like creative you can do all these different things so she said to me if you want you can be have a part-time job at the university like while you're studying where you do different initiatives to get more girls to study at QUT and I was like oh that's so cool so I started that job it was awesome. It was my first remote job. I could work from home, which I thought was super cool. And I just would run this like yearly event and other smaller events for high school girls to come in and learn about what it was like to be a student. So they would come and sit in on classes and it was really fun. So I, I started to get into the space of giving back and like helping other girls and women to study technology through that program. And then when I moved to Melbourne for my first job at the National Australia Bank, um, I also wanted to like, just get involved in the community. So I started to go to like girl gig dinners and I thought those really fun as like ways to be able to meet other women, but I'm like super nerdy. Like I am like so nerdy, you know, I spend my spare time like totally nerding out. I'm like building a smart home right now. I just bought like a Raspberry Pi Pico. I have like Raspberry Pi 4. I don't know. I have like any technology. I'm like really into it and I just have so much fun. So I was like, I love these dinners. It's cool to meet people. But what I want to do is have like all women work workshops where we're like learning to code in new languages that just came out. Like I was like, let's have like a workshop on Go, like the programming language from Google when that first came out. And we got like the, one of the engineers from the Go team to come and meet all of us. And then I was like, let's do a hackathon for all women to come along. This is like the first one in the whole world. We didn't realize at the time, but like Australia, our group hosted the first ever all female hackathon just because we thought it was fun to like get to build stuff together. We sold out in like a week. We had about a hundred people there um and it was just amazing to do that so ever since then i thought it was really cool and now we do all these different programs mostly we're focused on australia but like we have a lot of different programs for different ages so for five-year-old girls we do something called miss makes code and that's like an intro to coding they get to build something and they have so much fun it's like really cute if you want to like google it and just be like smiling like look on youtube at miss makes code adorable (laughs) and um And then after that, I have done some things in America, but only like very like small because I'm very busy with my time. So I, you know, I don't have so much time to be able to allocate to things. But recently what I did was with SAS, we hosted a workshop for girls who are the kids of parents that work at SAS. And I taught them how to code with Glitch. So that's also on YouTube. We hosted as like an online hackathon. So you can watch that YouTube video. That was amazing. Like they had like never written any code before and they were like full on writing all this JavaScript, doing like web GL stuff. I was like, wow, so like, cool. this is amazing. And they're like 11 oh, years so old. Cool. So. <laughs> 
So yeah, I, I learned a lot from that too, that with kids never think that they, they wouldn't know how to do something. Cause like, they just blow you away. You'll give them like really hard projects and they'll just be like done. Yeah. They're wow, sponges and they actually do know how to, how to absorb information and just how to figure things out. And it's getting more and more exciting when you think like, you know, the generations coming up now, you know, even though you were also using a computer from a very young age, it's now so accessible that you don't have to go and rent a, you know, a computer from the local store. It's like most people have multiple yeah. laptops and machines at home to work on. So it's just getting easier and easier, yeah. which is a great thing. And that's why the whole kind of push for representation and, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion is important because we need to show as many people as possible of every single background, like all people need to realize they have a space in technology. Uh, and that's kind of one of the things yeah. that I see you're pushing with Girl Geek Academy and that, you know, we're doing with the DevOps Diversity podcast as well. Yeah, I really love it. Like, you know, you just see all these amazing folks that are getting out there. I love what you're working on. I, I think it's so cool to be able to just like get more folks involved in technology. I have a lot of like favorite YouTubers in this space as well. There's like Marcus Brownlee. He's really cool. Does these amazing videos to help people learn about new technology and get people to feel like I can be involved in this. Like I can get interested in this. Like maybe this, this could be me like that, like pursues technology and invent something new that doesn't exist right now. Like that's the cool thing about tech too, is that you can be an inventor. Um, like something that I just recently did over the, like within probably about two days, was make a smart vanity set. So like, you know, a lot of girls, women have like vanity sets where you sit down, you have a little chair and like a mirror and stuff. And you like, you know, get ready in the morning, do your hair and stuff, makeup, whatever. I was like, that's cool, but I would rather it be like smart. So like I switched out the mirror for an, uh, a display screen, like an LCD screen. And then it also has a two-way mirror on the front. So it works as a mirror, but also as a computer and then a Raspberry Pi and has like the weather. It has a countdown to when you need to leave because, you know, you got to get ready by some time to make your next appointment, um, being able to see like news so and then you can just build whatever you yeah, want. That's yeah. Too, like the that's the cool thing, that right? You've you got can to just create whatever you need from what you've learned. And the fact that you're not afraid to learn anything new, it's like, you basically have this unlimited yeah. belief right now. You're like, I can just do whatever I need to, right. To create products and services that yeah. I care about. Yeah. And like a cool way to learn is to just make stuff for yourself for fun. And you're going to learn so many things by doing that. And, you know, Raspberry Pi is so cheap. I think it's like $20 and then you have your own mini computer. So this is like really cool too, coming from foster care background where I didn't have much money in our family and we had to rent a computer the fact that you can get your own like computer for twenty dollars and then you can just get a small screen to go with it like that's amazing for like under a hundred dollars to get a computer now your yeah, own one the accessibility there it's uh it makes it easy for anybody to do that right so yeah. so tammy we're at quick fire question round so question one for you yeah uh, if you had the chance what is the number one thing you tell your younger self on day one of your first job I would say like, you know, just have fun. Like that's like the most important thing. I, I still think that I used to tell other people that at work. So yeah, I'll say that just have fun. Like work should be just fun. Just enjoy it. That's it. So, yeah. and uh, number two, what is the number one personality trait that you look for in future leaders or people that you're hiring? Definitely like the ability to prioritize and having stories where they're like, yeah, I had all this different work to do. I prioritized this and this was the result or I deprioritized this and this was the result. And then number three, what is the number one non-negotiable skill that you would expect every person to have when you hire them? I definitely 
you know, need people who are able to learn new things quickly. And so that's like, that's, that's difficult to interview for as well, but usually it comes through storytelling. So, and the reason that that's so important is because like, you know, think of Amazon, they're releasing like new services all the time. And so it's like really important to be able to quickly understand how they work and to be able to analyze them, which ones are more reliable for us, for our needs, like specifically for site reliability engineering, um, being able to understand like how to work with new programming languages, new databases like DynamoDB versus MySQL. Like, this is like really important and I think like you know being able to be a quick learner like and you can get better at this like my tip um, you know something I do for fun is I figure out how to break systems and usually I can break any system in one day and that's like my thing that I love to do like give me a new technology and I can make it break in an interesting way in one day the longest it ever took me was I was trying to break something specific um and it i won't say what it was but it took me three weeks to figure it out i was like wow this was like way was harder because it was like way more reliable yeah. <laughs> so it was like a big challenge but those are the kind of stories that you want to hear when you're interviewing like how long did it take you to learn about something learn something new figure things out that's a great yeah. one because really what it shows uh you know as, as the interviewer it's going to show you that if that person has examples and real world scenarios where they've tried to where they've been able to learn and learn quickly uh, anything you put in front of them. So that means, you know, as hiring managers, we could be fine with you coming into the company, not knowing that much that you need to know for this job. Yeah. But what you're showing us is what you're able to learn and we can teach you and share anything you need. And once you know those things, you're going to continue to learn from everybody around you and from the industry and kind of bring new knowledge to us that we might not have ourselves. Exactly. And it, it doesn't have to be just technology, right? It could be like, tell them about how you learn to play the violin, the piano, learn how to skateboard, learn how to surf like you know what was your process around that like how did you learn and a lot of the time when I think people have great answers it's like I'll watch some YouTube videos to be able to understand how it worked then I like you know maybe asked a friend that was good at it to give me some tips then I tried it a bit myself I recorded myself I played it back um, I watched it I like made changes I then recorded again watched it again shared it with a friend asked them for tips because this is like a lot of stuff that you do when you work in technology you know I'm talking about things that's like code review like peer review you know you need to send your code to someone ask them to review it give you feedback make changes like you know don't get offended that it didn't work out straight away just like know that it's a journey and you're continuously improving like I think about that so much like you know, technology compared to skateboarding, you don't just wake up and do like a 360, like Tony Hawk, you know, like it takes time to get good. And it's a lot of like falling over and hurting yourself, but you got to get back up and just keep trying. Yeah. And that goes for really any job there is. So it doesn't even matter if it's within tech, it's everyone out here that's already in the career. They know what they're doing. They, they are looking for the next person to join them, to be open to learning and to understand that failure is going to happen, that you're going to have to get back up and keep moving forward. Thank you, Tammy. Really appreciated your time today. Everything you've mentioned has just been so fascinating. And the way you go about sharing your knowledge is amazing. So please, everybody go check out out Tammy, follow her on Twitter, which we'll share in the links as well. You know, look at her LinkedIn profile and see what she's all about. Learn from Gremlin and the stuff that they're sharing to the industry. And also if there's anything you uh, you know want from Girl Geek Academy or want to follow the education they're sharing, go and do that as well. So Tammy, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Connor. It was great to get to come along today and chat. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the DevOps Diversity Podcast. I've been your host, Connor Dellenbank. 
And today's episode was brought to you by Strategio.